Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. Last week, we welcomed Jamie Bartlett to the CapEx offices. He was here to debate whether or not the internet is undermining democracy with CapEx's editor-in-chief, Robert Colville. This important question is the subject of Jamie's new book, The People vs. Tech. Given the concerns over the role of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook in the election of Donald Trump, the book could hardly have been better timed. For this week's episode of Free Exchange, we're running a recording of Robert and Jamie's conversation that touches on everything from the role tech did or did not play in the recent shock election results to how realistic dystopian predictions of a world run by robots really are. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, so much for coming. I thought I'd start by saying a little bit about uh, my good friends Cambridge Analytica because <laughs> in addition to many other things, I suppose I should be thanking them and Carol Cadwallader for the timing to allow my book to be so relevant now. And I have a chapter about Cambridge Analytica in this book because I did a BBC series about Silicon Valley which included a lot on Cambridge Analytica. Weirdly, nobody knows this, but... My, uh, my agents recently moved office and they now share their office block with Cambridge Analytica. It's the strangest thing. Okay, Cambridge Analytica. I'm going to tell you what I think happened there um, because it's a good illustration of the broader argument of the book. I just want to know how many people here think that Cambridge Analytica swung the election for Donald Trump. Raise your hands if you think that they did. I had a feeling this I'm was going to be a sceptical audience. <laughs> I knew. I'm, I'm, I'm going to qualify this uh, with, with the fact that in a 58-42 election, pretty much anything swings the, uh, the, the, the vote for anyone. <laughs> it, uh, that, that, is, that is true. That is true. Um, but let me explain to you why I think the narrative about Cambridge is, is wrong um, and why I think they were quite important, all other things being equal. There's this slightly strange story at the moment that there was a, uh, some kind of psychological warfare tool being unleashed on the American people by Cambridge Analytica, which somehow convinced millions of people to change their minds. And uh, I think that is uh, ridiculous. I think that's quite patronising. And I think it can really only be understood as a lot of liberals desperately looking for excuses as to how on earth their candidate lost and it's very nice to say that it's uh, a sinister overseas analytics firm 
which ha even has a Bond-like quality to it, you know, because it's sort of, it's each an educated guy, Nick's running this company, funded by a shadowy billionaire called Mercer, data was got from an academic called Spectre, a.k.a. Kogan. You've got this little scrappy journalist called Carol who's on the case, and the whole thing really feels quite Hollywood. Now, so I don't think that's true, um, but I think they were really important. I think they were incredibly influential for very, very simple reasons, perfectly legal reasons, uh, which is that they had collected 5,000 data points on 200 million Americans, most of it commercially available. They built up, as many companies do, profiles on lots of, uh, of, of those people, the things they cared about, the things they were interested in. They then cross-referenced that against the voter vault, which is the Republican Party's database, to try to work out what the correlations were between people who kind of support the Republicans but aren't hardcore supporters with the sort of things they like, they care about, their credit record, their socioeconomic backgrounds and so on. And they built profiles of what they called persuadable voters, who they thought they might be able to nudge, just to push a little bit to, to convince them to, to vote Trump. Six weeks into the campaign, after having done all of this, Cambridge Analytica analysts, of which 13 were based in the Trump headquarters in San Antonio, Texas, not the main headquarters, but the digital headquarters, said to Brad Pascal, who's running the campaign, uh, we think uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are now all in play. We think there's enough persuadable Trump voters in those states. We should shift loads of our budgets into those three states, uh, which they subsequently did. And they ran, they spent $70 million on direct Facebook micro-targeted advertising using um, uh, Lookalike Audience, which is a, one of the services Facebook offers. Facebook had people, it had someone in the building as well, helping them do it. And um, they won each of those states by less than one percentage point. Um, and Facebook's own internal white paper said they were significantly better than Clinton at using the, uh, the tools that they had. They ran many more iterations of the ads. They had better advertisements. They were more likely to encourage people to act. Like the wording was better. And so when I put those things together, I think, yeah, I think Cambridge Analytica, you could make an argument. They were pretty influential, but not for the reasons people think. But I still think it's quite worrying. Because what it says to me is there is just a drift in politics towards ever more micro-targeted um, messaging in our elections. And that, I think, in itself is a worry. Think about all the data that we are about to be producing. We're, we're only just started in this mass data extraction revolution that we're in. Because many of the devices we now use and that are being produced are all internet enabled. They're all producing data about us, our fridges and our TVs and our children's clothes and our who knows what else. That's all of it's gonna end up in the end being used by political parties to build profiles about us, to target us. Does anyone really think it wouldn't be? I mean, I have this scenario, which is that in a decade or so's time, your eating behavior as collected from your fridge data will be used to work out, you know, you sort of cross-referenced against your Facebook posts, you're slightly angrier when you're hungry, which is about 5 p.m. because you haven't eaten. Um, other research suggests that people that are hungry are more likely to be right-wing. I don't know. I'm making this up. <laughs> They're angrier or something. So they'll get targeted. We, we keep the slap here in a state of so, no, yeah, yeah. Have some olives and some crisps, please. Um, and so you'll get targeted with adverts on the basis of those things too. And it, it really will never stop. And the thing that worries me about it is the way that we move slowly from a public debate 
to millions of private debates about politics. So elections become more about data science and nudging and less about a big argument of ideas where you know, you're just thrashing out the big debates of the day. And it becomes a lot harder for regulators, of course, to be able to see that, to monitor it, to check it, to make sure it's accurate, and to make sure that people are getting roughly the same sorts of messages. How even can you hold a politician to account if he or she has sent a million different messages, unique messages, to a million different people? But that is not unrealistic as what will happen in the next 10 years. So these are the arguments in the book. I'm not talking necessarily about right now. I'm trying to look at the trends that there are in uh, digital technology, roll them forward a decade or 20 years on the same trajectory that they're on now, and say, this is what's going to happen. These are the big threats to our democracy. We essentially have an old representative democracy built with one set of technologies and we have a new digital technology, and the two things don't work very well together. They keep clashing. And this, so it's not about rapacious capitalists in Silicon Valley that wear T-shirts to the office. It's a much bigger structural problem. Um, and, and I should have really called the book The rep represented, Modern Representative Democracies in Advanced Capitalist Countries versus digital technology, but the publishers were not interested <laughs> at all in that, so we said the people versus tech. So I basically say that there are these pillars that make modern representative democracies actually work, and there's the obvious benefits of individual freedom from the internet. It's unquestioned. It allows new people to find platforms, to speak out, but I think we're blinded by those benefits and we miss the boring things that make representative democracies work, and those are the things that are being undermined. So I go through each of these kind of pillars. Elections that people can trust in is one of them, and I've already said something about that. I'm not going to go through all of them. But another would be um, a criminal justice system that works. Uh, the, the majority of crime now is online. Over 50% of crime in the UK is online. Less than one quarter of 1% of online crime results in a successful prosecution. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really work. People are gonna lose trust in this. This is a serious problem and it's gonna get worse because anyone, the, I mean, the recent ransomware with the NHS is a good example. Anyone from anywhere in the world can target anybody else and it is very, very hard to catch them. Inequality. Now, there's a lot of talk, some quite ludicrous discussion about a, a jobless future where every single job will be done by a robot and we'll, I don't know what we'll do, we'll have some kind of universal basic income, which by the way, I'll say on record, I think it's a terrible idea. It's really fashionable and cool and everyone's like, yeah, it's great, it's brilliant. I think it is a, just another dystopia. But, um, but I don't think that's the real thing to worry about. What worries me is a gradual increase in inequality. I know CapEx don't believe that inequality has increased much over the last, well not just you, I mean a lot of people, there's figures to show this over the last 20 years. But what worries me is that as machine learning, artificial intelligence gets stronger and stronger, more and more of the benefits of that will accrue to a smaller and smaller group of people, the people that can benefit from that technology, or especially the ones that own the capital, that, uh, or the technology itself, that is gonna be a driver of innovation and productivity. And so you'll have kind of a diminished middle class uh, lots of brilliant service jobs, which can't be automated away because of Moravec's paradox about what things are easy to automate and which are not. But a lot in the middle that drift away and this kind of slow growing inequality whereby people, 
a sort of middle class which has always been so important for democracies to function because they're the ones that join the unrewarding parent-teacher associations and the neighborhood watch and they buy the newspapers and they vote and they buy the part and they buy the new and, and, and they join the political parties. <coughs> that if that starts to wear away, then that's another one of our pillars that is gradually eroded. Um, and so I go through these pillars and, and what's the dystopia that I'm fearing? Well, there's lots of dystopias to fear at the moment. Now, what's the correct dystopia? I don't think it's an immediate social breakdown and a crypto anarchic paradise of bitcoins and whatever. Um, and I also don't think it's fully automated luxury communism with universal basic income. Um, what I am worried about, though, is growing numbers of people just slowly stop thinking that representative democracy as a system works for them. They don't believe that it is a good way of securing wealth, well-being, safety. Uh, they don't believe in the elections anymore. They don't believe it, that it's going to provide jobs for them. They don't think that it can solve crimes. And gradually, more and more people start looking at authoritarianism as, a, as, a, as, an, as an alternative. Oh, things order seems to be re-established in China and Russia. Maybe we need a bit more of that. And so we gradually drift into more and more authoritarian uh, ways of thinking. And so under the guise of liberating us, technology actually takes us into, into, a, into a weird sort of techno-authoritarianism. Think about this. Tax will be so much easier to raise if you had a cryptocurrency system that was run and controlled by the government. Oh, it would be fantastic. Artificial intelligence, if it's one or two massive companies that have access to everybody's health data, the, the incredible advances that would be possible in that world for health would be fantastic. But these are very, very this is a very, very dangerous path to go down as well. So this is what I'm concerned about, and I have 20 ideas about how to stop it, although I'm gonna be honest with you guys, like, the publishers make you put these ideas in. Like, you need to come up with something positive here, Jamie. This is really depressing. <laughs> About 20 ideas to save democracy. Yeah, okay, I'll have 20 ideas to save democracy. So I've got ideas in there, but I'm going to say each one is only a paragraph long. And when you, after you've read 200 pages of why everything's going to the swanee, um, it doesn't feel like it's quite up to the task. But I do think there are things in there that we can do. It's a combination of what we in, as individuals uh, do. Uh, there is uh, stuff with regulation. Uh, there's stuff about how, uh, yeah, especially each of our sort of personal behavior is contributing to building these mega monopolies. Um, and so you, that's it. It's a kind of partly a rallying call, partly a depressing tome about how bad things have got. Um, but I hope it also sort of sparks some kind of response. And the interesting thing, and this is where I'll finish about the Cambridge Analytica story, is that whatever you think of it, people at the very least are now thinking long and hard about much bigger, deeper, fundamental questions about how this amazing technology that I'm sure you love and that I love, for all its wonders, there's a long-term trend and a long-term concern about what it's doing to our democracy. I'll stop. Okay. okay. So, so um, I should say, so my background on this, as, as well as uh, being involved in, in CapEx and the CPS, I, I wrote a book called The Great Acceleration about how our lives are, are speeding up. And, um, and that generally this is a, and driven by technology. And that generally this is a good thing, but um, it obviously has quite a lot of uh, downsides. I did say in that book that the area I was most pessimistic about was um, the media and politics and what the media and politics were doing to each other. 
Um, and then they published it, and then Trump and Corbyn happened. And uh, it's fair to say I, I've accepted my pe- pe- pessimism has been accentuated on, on, that, on that front. Um, You're the optimist here. You're meant to be the optimist. But I will. I will be the optimist. Um, and I, I should also say on the on the technical authoritarian side, you reminded me of um, a lovely Twitter exchange I had with Paul Mason, um, in which um, in which he had proposed that morning to nationalise Facebook in the UK, and I said that Paul, that's a really stupid idea uh, for the following reasons. And he said, okay, okay, how about we just nationalise the data. Uh, so that all, so I'm, I'm sure everyone in this room would be very, very happy to have um, Paul and Jeremy controlling all everything you have ever said on Facebook, because that is in no way a, a problematic or terrifying uh, scenario. Um, you didn't get blocked, though. I didn't get blocked, no. Right, um, okay. um, <laughs> uh, you, you talk about um, elections and micro-targeting. Um, yeah. The fascinating thing for me is that the concern about filter bubbles and micro-targeting and all that stuff has coincided with the great wave elections of, of our time. So, you know, the, the other example you could have given apart from Cambridge Analytica is Vote Leave. Um, Dominic Cummings, who is an extremely clever person um, and who was running the Leave campaign, essentially saved 90% of its budget until the final week. And they spent, they spent the rest of the campaign honing, trying to work out, as you, as you say, you know, what messages drive what kind of voters to vote for leave? What, what you know? If you're a sort of middle-aged clerk in Basingstoke, what, how will you? How how do you differ from a sort of um, a sort of seventy-five-year-old living in Thursk? You know, and really honing the messages. And then I think it was called the Waterloo strategy. That you know, they they came over the hill in the final week. Blizzard of digital advertising delivers the the, the election. And you know, maybe there's something to that. But one of the reasons they had to do that was because. A referendum is not a normal election. They didn't have the national infrastructure. So then in June 2017, you see an election in which actually, and like in 2015, you see an election in which actually the poll, the constituency by constituency results seem to have very little to do with micro-targeting. They have very little to do with target seats. There's a, there's a, there is a national mood. And things like, you know, the content of the Tory manifesto, in particular the social care policy, the, the Jeremy Corbyn's performance in TV debates, um, in the US thing, the, you know, the Co- Comey writing the, the letter, the fact that Hillary is a pretty crap candidate. You know, these these <laughs> things do sort of, I, I think, still outweigh and will continue to outweigh the the the, the more nuanced stuff. And actually, in terms of Labour's campaign, <coughs> the thing that really makes a difference is is feet. Uh, is people, you know, maybe you're mobilising them via via online communities, but you're get, it's getting people out to knock on doors and say, "Can you vote for Labour?" And you see this incredible, and this is what's terrifying most of the Tory parties that you see this terror, this kind of uh, astonishing rise in in Labour vote in the places that they went and knocked on doors and had human conversations. And you know, the fact is that you, the human conversations have generally been much more of a filter bubble than anything you find online. I mean. There's, a, there's, some, there's some good research on this, which Facebook love to quote because it sort of makes them seem less like the bad guys. Um, that you know, you're so, you, the people, you, people you work with or the people you're friends with or your, your own family, the views will tend to actually be much more homogenous than the, than the online world. Um, that said, there are obviously things to worry about. I mean, one of my favorite examples is um, if on Facebook you click that you like, the, um, like UKIP, it goes, oh, that's great. Here are some other pages you might like. The BNP, the National Front. Campex. I couldn't help that. Oh, sorry. Campex's uh, views on immigration uh, are extremely. But you know, but it, it's, it's obvious. You know, it's there is a, there is an intensifying effect. Yeah. Um, and then and the sort of more more broadly, I would say um, just the sort of the, the general the, the broader critique. I mean. 
the, the narrowing out of the middle class is one of those wonderful phenomena which is happening in every opinion column and no economic statistics. <laughs> um, it's happening in America, I, I, I accept, but, but if you look in Europe and Japan, you know, there is a, it's, it's still not, not with us yet. Um, but, the, the, but the lesson I come, come back to is, is from, from my book. Um, pessimism is so much more attractive. We are, we are wired to be pessimists. We, if I were to write the same book review and use, word, use positive adjectives about a book, and then have exactly the same book review and then in include negative ones. You would think, reading it, that the negative one was much cleverer, much more intelligent, and, you know, because, because we, are, we are biased to think that the world is going to hell in a handcart. And if you read back over 200 years of technology commentary, effectively, I mean, first of all, there is nothing new under the sun. Like, um, you know, people were, yeah, people were when, when the postcard was invented, one of the first things it was used for was sending anonymous threatening uh, messages to people. Um, you know, that spam was invented by um, this thing called the, um, the, I think it was called the, like, the Anglo-American Claims Company, where they would write, like kind of Nigerian princes, they would write letters to Americans saying, the, the Duke of Wellbeloved has just died, and you happen to be the, uh, the heir to his fortune. If you could send a small processing fee, we will, we will get your dukedom and castle sent over to you. Uh, you know, all, all of these things, um, and, you know, and there have always been a sort of drumbeat of, oh my God, this is awful, we're going to the dog, it, you know, this is destroying everything we, we stand for. I mean, I am you know, profoundly worried about the, the, the kind of representative element of democracy being filtered away. I think you know, the impulse to, to respond to popular, every last shift in popular, popular whim is, is still there. But actually, you know, most people still don't pay that much attention. They still, not, you know, they still don't concentrate on politics. They're still not obsessive. They're still, you know, online advertising, to have the effect that Carol Blesser sort of seems to think it would, would have to pretty much be like the imperious <coughs> curse. You know, you would have to be, I think, things like 36 times more effective than any other form of political advertising and communication ever invented in order to have had the, the effects of the, that are claimed for it. So, I, I mean, I think you, obviously there are things we have to be worried about, but the idea that we are heading towards dystopia is one which has a very long and sort of generally quite shabby record of, of being proved right. If you, if you're, if, you're, if you say, and it's always been incredibly unfashionable, actually things are getting better, we're all going to get richer, we're all going to be happier, we're all going to live longer lives, it'll be fine. You won't win any awards, but you're, the chances are you'll, you'll probably be, you know, closer to the truth. Where are you, Pen? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Yes, and for a very long time, I was a great optimist at Demos. I mean, I spent the, like, the first 10 years of my career at Demos writing about and proposing and suggesting wonderful ways that technology was going to breathe life into our representative democracy. And I think with that, I shared the great optimism of the early 90s, where everybody said, um, the, when we are connected, when, we are, when things are digitized, when we have more information, our politics will become more informed, it will become wiser, it will become less emotional, it will become less divisive, because people will have access to each other and to more information. I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a wild, scaremongering <laughs> pessimist to say that that is not true. That has not happened. Um, and that's, that's partly the, the tone of the book. I mean, I suppose I am, uh, I am being quite pessimistic in order to raise an alarm about something that, funnily enough, I think even six months ago, people weren't thinking so much about, but now really are. So when I started you know, talking about the dangers that some of this stuff had, um, is creating, um, people weren't too bothered about it. 
and I think they are much more so now. Uh, I do agree, like in the last, my worry is that the, if we don't regulate some of this stuff, people will throw out this technology and we will really, we'll really go back quite some distance. And so the reason I'm saying we need to slow it down a bit, we need to regulate it, we need to change some of our decisions, because what I fear is that people are going to go out and start smashing these machines up. And I'm sure in, in 1810, people were saying, well, you know, we've had revolutions and changes before, and it was all okay. And it was okay when we had the Industrial Revolution in the long run, but for the 25 years or so after, it wasn't okay for an awful lot of people, and it caused huge amounts of disruption. And you might even say that the GDPR... Well, I'm not going to get into the GDPR, actually. Yeah, so, so that, was, that was probably the, 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 the paragraph of your book I disagreed with most was when you went, GDPR, it's amazing. And if anyone's tried to run a small business or something, <laughs> yeah. something where, you, something where yeah. you try to communicate with human beings, the GDPR right. is not amazing. No, I, no, I'm sure there are going to be lots of problems with it, but I think it's quite important that we do, we do come up with ways of regulating how data is shared. And one of the reasons, it, what, like th this is the thing with elections. I agree with you totally. I, I don't. This is why I say I don't think it swung the election in the way that you, that some people have said that it does. But what has happened because it's been so unregulated the way these adverts work? I don't recall an election, the Trump election or Brexit, which has been more contested, where more people have said oh, it's not really the real result. It's been stolen. It's not true. And I think that's partly because people don't trust the way the elections were run. And so the more we're able to control it and somehow exercise some form of democratic control over the way, or at the very least, bringing up the election laws up to speed so that there's a way of regulating online adverts similarly to offline adverts, more and more people just won't trust the election results. And that is a massive problem. There's been, a, there's been one study that has found that if Google had changed the search engine results, I'm sure you're familiar with it, has changed the search engine results on it. It could have uh, altered the, the results of, of, of at least 20% of elections that are held around the world because elections are very close. And especially referendums, and I think we're going to have many more referendums in future because politicians don't really want to make big decisions and referendums seem uh, more in keeping with our digital lives where everything we have a say over. They're nearly always close because they're always done because it's a close decision between people because yeah, that's the reason we have it. And so I, I think what the key is with elections is that we have to come up with a way of regulating the way online advertising works for elections so that people continue to have trust in the process. And that is not what's happened in the last couple of years. So I agree with you about the, the, the constant concern about the middle classes. And it's always easy to say, well, this time it is different. But I do think this time it is different with artificial intelligence. And, and, and an awful lot of people that work in this field, and I work in machine learning, think that it's different too. They're genuinely concerned that the speed with which it's improving, uh, the way that um, obviously it has this kind of exponential improvement curve, because the more data it gets, the better it gets, which means the more data it can get, which means the better it can get. The fact that it is no, it is not going to be confined simply to physical tasks but to mental tasks uh, suggests to me that at the very least we have a hugely turbulent 25 or 30 years ahead of us as we transition. I mean, everyone said that. Mark Carney said that. Sergey Brin said that. Elon Musk has said that. It's not a particularly controversial view. And, and I, that's before what, you read Nick Bostrom about how he's just going to kill us all. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as we don't, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then if we don't, and if we do manage to fix the middle class problem, <coughs> we'll get killed by it anyway, so it's fine. Um, but, but interestingly, with so sorry, just before I get to Nick Bostrom, in fact, that is, but that is the I'm trying to set out what is the correct thing to fear, <coughs> not a massive jobless future, but I think it is that stretching of society. So therefore, you think about policies that respond to that rather than, for example, a UBI, which I think is not a good idea. The interesting thing about writers like Nick Bostrom, um, and it's the same in reverse, a lot of books that are about... So, so I should just, um, for those who haven't read it, um, Nick Bostrom <laughs> wrote a brilliant book called Superintelligence, um, which is also the most frightening thing you will ever read, in which he basically sets out why uh, the creation of a sort of artificial, in, a sort of proper artificial intelligence is likely to kind of then result in humanity being killed about a week later, unless we, <laughs> unless we do something about it. Um, like, here's the guy who came up with this the thing of the, the paperclip scenario, where you, you create a computer and you say, your job is to maximize the output of paperclips, and it goes, okay, well, we'll start with converting the entire world's surface into paperclip factories, mm -hmm. and these squishy organic little things which are living on it, uh, you know, they are, they are inefficient. Uh, <laughs> it, it wastes the resources. Um, and it, the, basic, the basic point is that if we can create a, an artificial intelligence, um, it's going to be created in a sort of arms race environment, <coughs> and it's not going to think like us, and it's not going to have our, our morals. Yes, and... Um uh, and and he, he did a survey of, of, of leading uh, research on artificial intelligence. The majority of them think that between 50 and 100 years, this scenario of generalised artificial intelligence will play, will play out. I mean, not the paperclip scenario, but that, that we'll, have, we'll have machines that are, that are so much more intelligent than us um, at, at, uh, in all sorts of different domains. And the idea of... The, so the scary thing about the paperclip scenario and others is... <coughs> Is this sort of what uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's an, uh, an engineer at Google, calls the, uh, the technological singularity. So the point at which a machine becomes so smart that it can make a smarter version of itself and then that smarter version can make an even smarter version and then so on forever. And when that moment happens, which he thinks will happen in 2049, uh, it will just disappear into the distance. I think a moral singularity is more likely, which is when we just start relying more and more on machines to take important moral decisions. Siri, how should I vote in the EU referendum? And it's just based on scraping all sorts of data. We have it already with voter apps, which I used to think were an amazing idea, um, where, you, where you plug in the things you're interested in, it tells you who you should vote for. And I now think they're a terrible idea because all they essentially do is outsource your ability to think for yourself to a machine that you don't really understand. So that's the thing that worries me. But people like Nick Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil and others that write about this, there's one called um, Human 3.0 by Max Tegmark that came out fairly recently, about how technology is evolving. None of them write about politics. None of them. It's not in there. And a lot of pol political books about the future say how democracies die that came out a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, doesn't mention technology. And so what I'm trying to do is put those two things together a little bit, because if you think about um, the paperclip scenario and other things that uh, Bostrom's written about, I mean, how does politics survive in a world of ubiquitous, highly intelligent machines? Does anyone have any ideas about that? Because I'm stumped. Um, well, the, but the, the, the scenario I think I came up with in my, my, my book is that rather than having rather than having a general election about who will be chancellor, you have a general election which is about who will get to tell the AI that runs the treasury what its priorities should be. <laughs> yeah. 
But we're clearly going to have to start experimenting with some of these ideas. I mean, maybe not that idea, but, 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 but some of these ideas, definitely. And, and, and this is why you know, one of the recommendations there is, is the importance. And to be fair, a lot of the people that work on this are really now trying like, to, to regulate artificial intelligence quite early and think about how do you hold it democratically accountable somehow? How, do you, how is it that politicians can understand the mechanisms that go into an algorithm that makes these decisions to make sure they're not, they're not like racist algorithms or whatever? So these are some of the suggestions that I have, none of which are, like I said, are completely perfect, but are the things I think we should be thinking about. And I, mean, I can slag my own book off because you've already got, or you've all got a copy of it, so <laughs> I can say what I want now. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Within your recommendations, actually, one of the it's interesting that which were probably the part of the book I disagreed with, disagreed with most. Apart um, from the GDPR, no, no, no uh, disagreed with most. Uh, the GDPR, you know, robot taxes. Oh, God, um, you know, um, we are you know, we are the least robotized uh, economy in the. Uh, um, but I, I think I mean, I, I think there's an interesting thing that you you you, you slightly I, I would say underestimate the power of government. Or you know, when you're talking about Bitcoin, for example, you say, "Oh, you know, and this will completely, you know, it could completely destroy the tax base." In which no, case, I don't say that it will completely destroy the tax base. I say what will happen, I think, is that that criminals and other very rich people will find it easier and easier to do tax evasion, which means more and more of the tax burden falls on an increasingly aggrieved middle class who are pissed off, and then and they'll and they'll stop paying tax. Well, to my comeback to which would be that the government is just going to, um, you know start taxing people's houses because you know it's quite easy to see houses and large, rich people tend to have large houses and you can you know you can but you, you can send a drone send a drone but um what I wanted to ask about was do you think I mean this is something of a pet um course me at the moment do you think that there is sufficient expertise within politics to understand what what is coming you basically 
There is, I mean, there's a quote from Eric Schmidt uh, of, of Google. You know, there is there is a chasm between the worlds of politics and gov- uh, between technology and politics, and no one has built a bridge across it. Um, you know, I think it's something like 10, 11, 12 percent, and and rising of UK jobs are tech jobs. I would say one percent of MPs have a background in that mm. in that industry. I mean, do you, do you think we have? I mean. If the solution to all of this is regulation, which I we can we can argue yeah. about separately, yeah, are the people doing the regu- do the people doing the regulation have enough wisdom to regulate properly? I would suggest, based on most of the tech regulation we've seen, up to and including the GDPR, that that's not, you know, the, you know, the, 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 just the, say it. Just the, say the, it. The, the principle <laughs> the principle of first do no harm is not really uh, not really enshrined in. In tech regulation, um, no. Yeah, I, well, anyone that obviously that, that, that watched. I, interestingly, I think there's been a bit of a difference between Damien Collins' um, DCMS committee and the Senate uh, committees that, that both grilled Facebook recently. I think I mean, Damien Collins' Senate were utterly imbecilic. They were no. they were completely <laughs> useless. Um, that was partly the structuring of it. I mean, it's just a, that's a simple problem. Of, some of that was they just weren't. They didn't understand the basics. I don't expect any of them to have PhDs in computer science. I can't think of much worse than a world of MPs with PhDs in computer science. (laughs) But there's some real basics about how does the advertising model work? How does machine learning actually work roughly? What's it good at and what's it bad at doing? And there's a sort of baseline level of generalized knowledge that I think MPs should be expected to reach. Damien Collins seems to have done a good job on this. I think he's doing very well, and he's a hist- you know he, I, I looked him up for this exact point, and he did he did an undergraduate in history or something like that. I mean, so he you can learn this stuff. A lot of it's not really all that complicated. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I did an undergraduate in history as well, and I'd like to think that I know at least something. I about also tech. did an undergraduate <laughs> in history. What's going on? All, all the best people, but but then you have a situation. So if you talk to civil servants, people who work in you know, people who who deal with like beekeeping. Get yeah. thousands of, le- of letters and written questions a day, or you know, animal, you know, from from <laughs> aggrieved MPs prompted by their constituents. Yet the guys who work on artificial intelligence just kind of get to sort of you know actually do their jobs because yeah. they don't because the MPs are not asking the questions about self-driving cars or you know or AI itself or you know yeah. But I mean, part of it I think so. I, GCHQ has um, a, a a Costa Coffee in there. An old, like a rubbish Costa coffee with really long queues. Facebook has like its own barista where you can get classes on doing, you know, making espresso and things like that. I mean, they're just better places to work. You get paid loads more money. I know that a lot of people in the intelligence agencies are very worried that they just lose all their best staff straight away to these places. So it's very easy for me to then say, so the answer's obvious, we've got to pay these people more. At some point, I think we are going to have to make it a more attractive... I mean, what, why would anyone join Newham Council digital IT team to work on building their own version of an app, an app when they could go and get... And so it's not just GCHQ that's struggling. I mean, it's all local councils too. So I wonder if we can make these places more interesting places to work. Yeah, there may need to be more money going into it. I think the ICO is probably going to have to have more money being spent. Uh, more money being spent on it. But they already stuff. built bought all those really cool jackets. Yeah, they did. did, ICO, did, did, did they, that's did, a start. Did, did everyone see this when they were they, they went the the, in, the information commissioner's office went on a raid and got to wear their ICO windbreakers <laughs> like like, like with, with ICO on the back. 
like enforcement <laughs> team. Enforcement with like, when you know, they got to feel like they were in the FBI, and everyone else just sort of pissed themselves laughing. <laughs> but you, but, but but one day we won't be laughing anymore because I think they'll be doing a really important job. Because one day we'll be worrying a lot more about algorithmic accountability and people saying, I've been prejudiced by this CV checker that's discriminating routinely against women because of the historical data and I'm complaining to the ICO. And some smart person is from the ICO is going to need to be able to go in and investigate that. And uh, at the moment, they don't have really the people. They don't have the, so they got the windbreakers, but they don't have enough of the people to do it. So... Again, it's kind of easy to say, oh, we need more money and we need more... <laughs> but I think there is a bit of that on this on this subject. Interestingly, the recent German law on hate speech, and I, and I worry about hate speech law because I think it is far too... It's, it's, it's overdone. But the German minister, um, justice minister, behind their hate speech law, which is essentially fining the big tech platforms large amounts of money if they do not remove hate speech within 24 hours, he has a PhD in computer science the first MP, I think, that, that has. And he's, and he's like, they keep telling us that they can't do it. I've got a PhD in machine learning. I know they can do it. And, and it's so I'm interested to see how that one plays out because it's only just passed into law. You often find with these companies, they say it's impossible and then regulations put in place and then they somehow manage well, all, to all, do all, it. Although the counter argument on that would be that that's a great case of legislating for one or two big companies and which kind of penalises others because the, the problem is that the, the threshold they set at which you need to start doing this Facebook can afford to you know hire the extra people or <coughs> write the extra algorithms to read out hate speech but someone who wants to be the next Facebook probably, probably can't yeah that's true that's true I think we have to end um, thank you so much to Jamie Bartlett I'm sure he'll stick around to answer yes. uh, any particular questions or you know tell you to turn it off and turn it on again uh, if, that's, uh, if that's what you need um, so I'd like you to join me in thanking uh, Jamie Bartlett Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.